Hey, I'm Corey Pine. This is News From Nowhere, brought to you by The Baffler Magazine. Please subscribe at thebaffler.com. Good show this week. Three-time guest Michael Brooks coming on to talk about podcast hate and persuasion versus power politics. First, Jason Wilson. He's an Australian writer living in like me, in Portland, Oregon. Works mostly for The Guardian. And Jason just got back from Nashville, Tennessee. So I just, I was reading your article when you came, and yeah. I um, I saw your Facebook post, too, and you said, pound for pound, this last weekend involved the most dispiriting human interactions I've ever experienced in the course of reporting. So what happened in Tennessee? Like, <laughs> let's, let's just explain to people okay. what this misery is. Uh, was about yeah so it was the annual conference um uh of a group called american renaissance um so american renaissance was started in 1990 by a guy called jared taylor who's still in charge and is still the the um you know the person who orchestrates this conference uh american renaissance is a white nationalist organization he always says i've talked to him before over the phone which is bad enough. <laughs> but, Jared Taylor. Jared Taylor. Yeah. He always says it's about white advocacy and race realism. So white advocacy is rooted in this sense that uh, white people are disparaged in our culture. Um, they're disempowered. They're the only group that can't take pride in their heritage, especially Southern heritage. He always, he always adds that. Those are the, the whitest, most special white people right, right. Or, or the ones who the ones whose heritage is most denigrated by everyone else according to him um and you know he'll make claims about people being disadvantaged in terms of everything from you know college admissions to you know the way in which hollywood depicts white people to every, everything you know he he has this whole universe of claimed white disadvantage he can point to reverse racism standard yeah, except a much a much more kind of apocalyptic version of that. Because oh, so he's into the white genocide narrative and all um, that. Or? Yeah, I, I mean, in 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 particular ways, yeah, and in ways that kind of begin now in the Trump era to link up to what passes for mainstream right wing discourse. So they have this idea. You'll hear again and again the word dysgenic. So something, in other words, is. Um, if something is dysgenic, it is depressing the um, genetic um, fitness or quality or whatever of the population. And so something like the welfare state they see as dysgenic, European welfare states, because they encourage the least um, genetically um, uh, fit, genetically favourable, genetically you know, um, uh, desirable people to have lots of kids which will then be supported by the state, and they tax the most genetically des- desirable people to, to to fund that. So there's some old-fashioned, like, social Darwinism in there. Too. Totally. Yeah. And and a really old-fashioned um, uh, kind of scientific racism as well. Um, so they actually... Do, I, I saw pictures of brains, you know, and, and different-sized brains and, <laughs> you know, IQ tables and all that kind of stuff. There, there's a real desire to revive... Um, you know, that, that kind of scientific racism, which in mainstream circles has been discredited since the end of the Second World War. And that's what race realism by the, is, yeah. by the way, to them. That's the second component. Like, they consider themselves to be realists about race, and the rest of us are kind of denialists. So Because they've got some sort of evolutionary crackpot narrative that supports their ideas. Right. So that i I got a question I want to pause here, because yeah. 
apart from Jared Taylor, the organizer, who mm. goes to this thing? I mean, the people giving these talks on IQ and brains, I mean, are these real academic experts? Um, or who, um, who There was one about? guy, um, who a, a professor from Denmark, Denmark by the name of uh, Nyborg. Uh, his first name just escapes me for the, sec- for the moment, but he... He has actually been tried for academic dishonesty and stuff in Denmark. He was the opening speaker and he was talking about um, how uh, IQ and brain size um, and uh, propensity for democracy increase um, depending on the distance of a culture from the equator. So he had this whole theory of human history that just happened to isolate the people of Northwest Europe as as the most... um, uh, uh, the people with the biggest propensity for democracy and not necessarily the, the, the highest IQ, not necessarily the biggest brains, that goes to East Asians, um, but the people who combine the high IQ with a kind of moral um, goodness, you know. Um, and, you know, he had this whole theory, as I said, of human history that, uh, along those lines, but the danger, as he saw it now, is mass immigration, is, um, you know, flooding... These countries, like like his native Denmark, which he talked about a lot, um, and basically depressing average IQ, and um, you know the, the Danish welfare state is is encouraging these migrants to breed. So there's a lot of lot of concern about demographic replacement, demographic emergencies. So um, straight out of the 19th century, this stuff. Yeah, and there's a there was a guy um, there also. Uh, there's a website called VDare, which is kind yeah. of into this stuff. Um, Peter Brimelow uh, is the editor of that. He spoke at the conference. He didn't speak it's much more about of a lobbying that. group. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, kind the of. They, sure, they do agitation and yeah. email ch- chain letters. Yeah, they're mainly like they're mainly a publisher. Yeah. Um, but Brimelow actually used to be um, the editor of Forbes, and and. Um, you know, ran some of these kinds of stories there. But there was a guy called John Derbyshire who does a podcast that's become increasingly popular and he writes for VDare. Yeah, He's been really. a f- kind of freelance columnist, journalist. I mean, he used to write for The Spectator. I, I'm pretty sure, yeah. yeah he, he, he said Wall something really offensive and racist, if I recall, that kind of ended his career in mainstream media and then wound up, I think, for, at Takis Magazine for a while. Which is yeah. Cool. Yeah, so a lot of these guys, you'll find that trajectory. I mean, yeah. it's really interesting. Um, Sam Francis is someone who was who's he's dead now, um, but he was the kind of intellectual titan of this whole scene, um, and and was genuinely a pretty good writer um, and uh, engaged with the kind of literature in a way that a lot of these cranks and crackpots don't. But yeah, he got actually uh, fired from the Washington Times after an American Renaissance conference in 1995 where he said a bunch of racist stuff. So the, the, a lot of these guys have been on that trajectory where the mainstream conservative movement has kind of purged them. Um, or you know, had, yeah. yeah, yeah. When someone like Bill Buckley was around, you know, um, as, as terrible a person as he was, um, he tried to maintain some kind of um, control and maintain some kind of standards and decorum where... Things like open anti-Semitism and you know open um, white nationalism and open uh, uh, just you know racial talk like these guys are into was just not something um, that you could do and stay in the mainstream conservative movement. So in in a way, American Renaissance has been a clearinghouse for the guys who just can't quite bring themselves to put away that 
the white nationalism and the open racism and the anti-Semitism. Um, um, so, yeah, I mean, there are a ton of guys there like that who've, who've just ended up now in these places like Takis, like, like, like American Renaissance and like um, V-Dare, um, which are publishers as well as, as, as kind of um, talk shops. Um, so yeah. nobody who's like currently a household name, but some speakers included people who'd had somewhat, uh, some level of professional achievement and, and mainstream success, but maybe got hounded out of the, uh, the public yeah. because of their views. I mean, the closest thing to a household name and someone who's on a very different trajectory because of the times we live in is Richard Spencer, who was there. <clears throat> so that, that gives a good picture of the speakers. Who, who showed up just to attend to hear these these sort of lectures. Well, the thing I would say is that there's a strong neo-Confederate kind of flavor to a lot of this. You know, so unlike some of the cultural nationalists, I suppose that we, you and I have dealt with a lot in the Pacific Northwest, you know, the militia guys and stuff. These guys are perfectly content to talk about a separatist white ethnostate, you know, being set up somewhere in America. So there's that kind of propensity to um, 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 separatism uh, that um, is also something that, that, you know, is obviously historically associated with the South and with the ways that people have thought about the Civil War, who, who thought that that didn't go the right way. <laughs> um, so, and that's just by way of saying that a lot of, a lot of the attendees are these kind of older guys from the South um, who have strong neo-Confederate uh, sympathies. So guys who are well into middle age, who are coming from Texas, coming from um, the Deep South, coming from Alabama, you know, um, who are interested in talking about those kinds of issues, you know, who, who are, you know, sort of nursing a, a, a kind of lost cause thing and, and the racism kind of goes along with that. That's, that's one group. The thing that struck me, though, this time was how many young people were there. So Identity Europa had a stall set up there. Um, Nathan Damigo, the, the leader, was there. Um, and um, there were a lot of young men, young millennial men with the sort of fashy haircut, the... Once you've seen it, you'll you'll know it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's it's really associated, strongly associated with the, the various subcultures that are on what we call the alt right now. And yeah, there were a lot of young millennial men there who were extremely excited, extremely energetic. There are a couple of speakers who were talking about how European millennials are being red pilled, um, how the how the identity movement in Europe is. Uh, bringing in millennials um, and Taylor himself told me that you know that he'd been surprised and and uh, caught off guard by the the way in which younger people were suddenly kind of embracing this movement in not the last two or it. three years not used to it are they they're not and I'm not sure they know exactly how to handle it I mean they did make space for a couple of speakers but in some ways, they were all kind of talking about the same old things that they've been talking about for the last 20 years or more. How big was the crowd, would you say? A few hundred? A thousand? It, I think it was exactly 300, um, because that's the carrying capacity of the space they use. So it's, it's sold out uh, more than a month ahead of time. And I would say a solid third of the people there were, were, were younger. There was a kind of Generation X-shaped hole there. There were a lot of guys who were well into middle age, roughly Taylor's age or older, um, and then a lot of younger people who 
have been energised, I would say, by the, 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 the sort of surge of that, that alt-right movement. And Taylor certainly said that that was, that was new. Um, so back to your characterization of your article, yeah. what was the most dispiriting interaction that you had? Sounds well, pretty dismal in general, <laughs> but... Um, I, I mean, the whole mental atmosphere of the thing is just relentlessly dark. I mean, it's, it's every speech is presenting this kind of apocalyptic scenario, you know, about the end of Western civilization. I mean, they're really trying to to scare one another, it seems to me. And it's extremely paranoid. Um, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories about, you know, academics trying to conceal the reality of race, you know, um, about the real truth of, of, of Islam and what it really wants to do in, in, in Europe and how it's been trying to invade and colonise Europe for, for, for years. Um, you know, about, um, you know, cultural Marxism. Uh, a guy handed me a flyer about vaccines and autism i mean a lot of the same conspiracy theories you get in other parts of the right but there's this just this relentless narrative of emergency and decline and a real sense that they're kind of surrounded by enemies so that's one thing but i mean talking to someone like jared taylor who in some ways is a well exaggeratedly well-mannered kind of gentlemanly courtly kind of guy and well, then, how do you do, sir? Kind of stuff. Yeah, like that. yeah, yes. yeah. But then he's characterizing black people in just in just these these horrible kind of terms. Um, talking about antifas as half half man, half beast. Talking to you about how black people and white people just can't possibly live together because because black people are just fundamentally unsuited to to, to contemporary civilization. And you know, doing it with a straight face, doing it straight out, not dog whistling, not 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 trying to conceal it, not it's not implicit, you know, it's like black people are inferior and that's why whites need to go off and have their own country. I, I mean, it's just... And then you're hearing all this 19th century sort of race science or, you know, all of these... All, all of this stuff, it's just so relentlessly dark and people will just come out and say it to your face and it's just... Um, it's just... Uh, it just it just gets you down because they're yeah. not. It's not only the content of their beliefs, but that they're trapped in this in this kind of dark, paranoid space. You know where um, where this is all that they're kind of thinking about. Um, You'd think that that level of paranoia would make them completely ineffectual as far as like political operators go, uh, but this seems to be kind of a an upsurge for them, right? This is like their moment, at least in the last, and in my lifetime, certainly. It's it's always tricky discussing this stuff, you know, because, like, they're not going to get a white ethno state, right? Like, that's, well, you know, touch wood, because weird things have happened in the last couple of years. But, but really, there's no prospect of that. But in terms of influencing broader right-wing discourse, I mean, yeah, I think they are. I think they unquestionably are. They're not the pariahs in the, in the conservative movement anymore. No, I don't see any barrier in some ways to this kind of stuff. Talking about a white ethno state. Even yeah, what do they in, mean by that? Let's just break it down the jargon a little bit. I mean, that means like a country where there are literally no black and brown people. Right. As they define it. Right. Because we, like... Like race as a construct, right? I mean, would they propose some kind of genetic test to uh, discern that, or is it they're just eyeballing it? I mean, um, how does practice? Yeah, it it, it gets fuzzy because even they were presenting stuff 
you know, in some talks saying that, like, there used to be this racial discourse about different European groups, you know, in, in the 19th century. Like, race was used to discuss right. the difference between Britons and Italians, you know. Um, and, and they still do that a little. Um, but, um, um, yeah, for, for now, um, it seems like it's as simple as someone with white skin, with white ancestry. So, basically, Whoever Europeans. Yeah, yeah. And um, they want... They think that that uh, racial difference is crucial. It means that people have higher IQs. It means they have a greater propensity to, you know, higher civilization or whatever. Um, and it means that they can't live with people of other races who don't have the same attributes. Um, one of the guys, Derbyshire actually, was talking about um, the BIP uh, factors. So that's um, behavior, intelligence and personality, you know. That, that race kind of separates people along those lines. Um, and so the plan is to have different states for different racial groups. They've kind of acknowledged that they're not now going to be able to just um, affect these mass deportations and just have the whole United States to themselves. So they're talking about maybe the South, maybe the Pacific Northwest, somewhere anyway, where there can be a, a kind of white ethnostate. And I talked to Taylor about it, and, and he was... He's kind of into the idea of the Pacific Northwest for the same reason all of these guys are, that it's so white already that it wouldn't be that White difficult. already and relatively remote, and they figure they could sort of affect some kind of political takeover, yeah. right? and there's all these dramatic mountains they can kind of probably stand next to and stuff, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, this is a tangent, but I grew up uh, from my earliest years in this town called Leavenworth in the Cascade Range in Washington oh, okay. State, which is uh, a mock Bavarian village. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> if you look at pictures of it online, you can see, uh, you know, it would pass. It would pass. Yeah. There's some McDonald's and Tells that you're in the U.S., but I, I never really figured out what the motivation for that was. Obviously, there's like a tourist trap, but... Yeah. Yeah, I don't, who I don't knows? know. I mean, you don't necessarily want to ask too many questions. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Exactly. But, but you know, Richard Spencer, I mean, he used to have that publicity shot of him... You know, in the snow, out at out at um, Whitefish in Montana, with you know the mountains in the background and stuff. I mean, they're they tend to be really into that stuff. But yeah, uh, um, like they're aren't even really that outdoorsy though. It's, it's a pretty bookish crowd, I would say. Um, and and a lot of the guys speaking, they had that strong kind of whiff of the autodidact. You know what I mean? Yeah, the guy who absolutely yeah sits in his shed and goes over IQ tables. Well, John, John Derbyshire, <laughs> to me, he reads as, because I've lived in the UK as you have, he reads as one of those, a classic provincial kind of lower middle class autodidact. Like if he wasn't into race and IQ, he'd be into trains or something. And <laughs> in his presentation, he, he pulled this classic move, which is like, um, he was talking about population genetics and he recommended this test this textbook on population genetics and he said if you go through that textbook and do all the do all the quizzes the exercises <laughs> do all the exercises you'll know a lot about population genetics and it's just like the classic <laughs> go to the public library and get the textbook on population genetics like and an undergraduate of, text it sounds yeah, like yeah. or maybe even high school yeah I, I think undergraduate <laughs> but it's like that's the classic autodidact kind of move I think you know like I've read the textbook 
you know, not that I want to put shit on people who are trying to improve themselves or whatever. But, well, look, but it's, no, of course not. I mean, reading widely is a, is a great thing to yeah. do. I mean, that goes without saying. But we're, we're talking about people that present themselves as, like, uh, not just experts on the subject mm. of race science, whatever yeah. that is. Yeah. But, uh, you know, people who, who have won over on all of the... Uh, whatever, yeah. liberal propagandists in the academy yeah. that they reject completely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but they actually, they have no basis for doing so. That's it, your point. Exactly. I mean, and this was in the middle of a talk where he was castigating people for being race denialists, you know, and, and talking about how um, uh, Franz Boas and anthropology had completely um, destroyed the basis of, or had conspiratorially almost destroyed the basis of people acknowledging the reality of race. So yeah, it's it's in that context. It's not like he's having a, a kind of good faith discussion about it where he's trying to learn more about it or whatever. This yeah. is like the real horror of these kind of movements in some way is, you know, apart from the sort of hate crimes, violent yeah. crimes that they enable, but yeah. this idea that, you know, if they achieve the kind of political power that they dream of even in a limited way, I mean, in some ways, what they've already achieved like it forces us to have this conversation to discredit their nonsense. Yeah. And if they get more power, then there's no one who will be able to say, uh, "No, you're wrong," because they'll have the default history. Yeah. You know, and they will dictate what the science is. Uh, that that's the real scary part, I think. I mean, the other worry. What I was saying before was, you know, they're not going to get their ethno state, but they may have more and more influence over mainstream right-wing discourse. And I think that's already happening. And I think, you know, Steve Bannon's not a million miles away from being that kind of figure. I mean, he's into all of these crackpot theories of history and, um, you know... Uh, I, I mean, he does have, it seems, some um, pretty good analytical abilities uh, and capacities, and, and he understands finance and numbers and, and, and whatever. But... Um, the, the the movies he's made and 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 the kind of theories of history that he's drawing you know the fourth turning and all that kind of stuff none of that um, and, and is is a million miles away from this stuff and and his kind of magpie like use of these these kind of disparate intellectual strands you know that he pulls together into this kind of softer white nationalism is, 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 yeah. I, I mean, there's no kind of filter on the right anymore. I don't, I don't think. And so there were, there were lots of citations of Charles Murray, for example, there, who's ostensibly himself a kind of mainstream figure. So there's a crossover point right there. Um, the way in which the mainstream right talks about the effects of the welfare state, I mean, they're not, it doesn't have that pseudoscientific gloss that these guys are trying to give it, but they kind of say that it's it's it, it leads to social pathologies through a similar kind of mechanism. You know, the worst people get to have lots of children, and and we subsidise that, and we we shouldn't. You know, yeah. So they don't talk about brain size, but they also kind of talk about there are is is a way in which people talk about Islam and mass migration in ways that are really similar. Um, that's the uh, that's the real point of overlap, right? Because yeah. even somebody like Donald Trump, I mean, for all the. Uh, you know the the racial slanders he's he campaigned on and he's uttered since he's become president. Um, he's still not as as nakedly racist as these guys. No. But when they talk about Islam and migration, that's really where they sync up completely. 
Yeah, like they don't have a Darwinist kind of gloss. They're not talking about IQs and all that kind of stuff, but they are talking about Europe being flooded, you know, or right. but by, by or Muslims. Or Long Island. I mean, that was right. Trump's speech last week, right? Yeah. The animals are in, uh, have taken over. Right. And we need to, uh, and he used that word a few times. Yeah. Um, and we need to crack some skulls, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's a kind of there's still a story of demographic and cultural replacement, and it's just put in slightly different terms. And, and you know, like, gee, until two years ago, the Republican Party was kind of trying to move away from that stuff. Uh, you know, however, certainly the Bush, the Bush family was right was pushing them in that direction, and we need to pick up Hispanic votes. Was there right? You know, yeah, Carl and Rove's whole. Uh, it, it was all self-interest to some extent, yeah. but 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 you know, Reince Priebus re- re- produced that report saying, uh, you know, the postmortem of 2012, saying you know we can't do this anymore, we can't alienate these groups because we're gonna we're, we're just not gonna win any elections. Um, and he's out of the picture now, right? So. Um, but now, I mean, now the stuff coming out of the White House, the stuff on talk radio is much closer, much, much closer to what these guys are saying than it has been for quite a long time. So it wasn't that exotic what you heard there in the sense that, like, uh, we could all sort of turn on the, the radio or, or load up, uh, you know, InfoWars or uh, G. Gordon Liddy's show or, or any of that. And or Breitbart. Or Breitbart yeah. and get a dose of this stuff. Or even Tucker Carlson, Daily Caller, for that matter. I mean, um, it is important to make the distinction, I think, that, that you've already made, that we've, we've yeah. made again and again. Like, like, you're not getting outright white nationalist separatism, uh, you know, on Breitbart. You're not getting, you're not getting IQ tables. You're not getting stuff about brain sizes. But like, you're getting a discourse that's heading in the same direction. And you're getting the fund. You're getting the base, the bases of it, right? Yeah. You're getting the some of the the. The pieces of evidence that these people use right. to support their case, like when Tucker Carlson did this segment with, um, this was a shocker for me. I didn't realize this narrative was coming back. I mean, mm. in the UK, the people are constantly complaining about the travelers, you know. Yeah. But Tucker Carlson had a segment where he just uh, ran it about uh, gypsies, right? Uh, like invading some town in Pennsylvania, California, I forget, right. and. Uh, all these outrageous things he said, like they're shitting on people's lawns, and he had some Roma guy on, you know, yeah. who didn't seem to know why he was coming on the show and was sort of taken aback by the whole thing. Right. Um, I mean, that is like straight out of the 30s, right. you know, 30s fascist European and rhetoric, and yeah. so... Yeah, I mean, Tucker Carlson didn't close his segment and say, and this is why we need a white ethno state, hmm. and we need to purge the, the gypsies, and who knows what to say about yeah. the, the Jews next. Yeah. Uh, but he provided the building blocks, so people that are already into that yeah. uh, worldview can feel validated, and like they, they have a touchstone with his show, and people that aren't might... I don't know. They might Google it and might lead them down a path to where they might wind up in an American Renaissance. Conference. Absolutely, yeah. No, I, I'm not trying to minimize it at all. I, and I think like that kind of stuff that Tucker Carlson is doing, that's that's kind of new, even for Fox. Yes, you know, I agree. That's that's not that's not something we've seen on Fox very much before. I don't think, I, I, and I, believe me, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to say Roger Ailes was a good person, but there would have been a point I think where that just wouldn't have been able to be aired. And, and, you know, like with Breitbart, okay, um, 
Yes. They're probably not going to give you a big table of IQ statistics, but they'll they'll use the same crime statistics that these guys use. You know, the same selective, cherry-picked kind of crime statistics. Um, they'll they'll um, they'll stoke the same kind of fears. For now, they won't. Um, uh, they won't kind of head in the direction, quite in the direction of scientific racism or in the direction of a white ethnostate. But yeah, that's that's the thing. There are more points of contact between, you know, an organisation that was completely marginalised until until really quite recently. Um, um, and and what, what we think about as the mainstream right. There was a really good article actually in BuzzFeed by Aaron Rosen and Joel Anderson... They were talking about how Bill Regnery has been funding these guys for a really long time. So he's the same family as Regnery Publishing, which is, you know, they've all, they're all on the right, but this is the kind of black sheep, crazy cousin. And he's been, uh, he's been funding um, the National Policy Institute, which is Richard Spencer's outfit, and American Renaissance, apparently, for a really long time. But still, even, even so, I mean, he was kind of, blanked by his his family um and these organizations were not uh, you know not something that had many points as as many points of contact with with the mainstream um and taylor told me on the weekend you know he felt like he was just making a racket for a really long time he just thought he was you know yelling into the wind basically but now he really feels like they're they're getting some traction well, that's not that nice for him tyler seems really delighted about um you know, the fact that people are making memes and podcasts, but he kind of talks about it like your granddad does. But yeah, he doesn't quite get it. No, yeah. he doesn't. But Spencer absolutely understands all that. But but what he's taken from groups like American Renaissance, which he has attended before, which he's got a long-time association with, um, is that idea that you can put a kind of... Uh, a Yaley kind of face on on this stuff, you know. You can you can you can um, put a Brooks Brothers suit on it and 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 um, speak in a certain way and adopt a certain rhetorical pose that's that's going to get you a hearing in the media in the way that a skinhead's never going to get, you know, or even a militia guy is never really going to get. Do you think really that strategy works for the right but not the left? Because you know. The stereotype, I mean, for the last 40, 50 years, I mean, the, the leftist stereotype has been like Tweety, academic, you know, all of those trappings, maybe not super fashionable, but at least, you know, come someone who's comfortable moving in elite circles, uh, but it hasn't gotten mainstream respectability for the left. In fact, the left only seemed to start getting attention when it started getting a little more uh, down yeah. to business, you know, like rolling up its sleeves kind of stuff. It's a really interesting question. I can give part of an answer or what I think is an answer. I mean, Richard Spencer, he comes from a similar class position to a lot of American reporters. And to a lot of American reporters, while they may disagree with the idea of white nationalism um, and all of the other things that he talks about, and while they may be disgusted by those things if they really think about them, you know, in person, he's not saying anything that's immediately threatening to them you know I he's mean, that's describing not... I mean I think that's I think that's probably going in the right direction because he's describing something that for the average sort of middle to upper middle class white American journalist might actually enhance their inherent social standing 
No. Whereas the leftists, whatever they dress like, is describing something where they're not maybe knocked down a peg or two. Yeah. Uh, or at least they perceive it that way. I'm still pretty new to this country, and yeah. and and so maybe I'd ask you. I mean, is is it possible that his habitus, his accent, um, maybe even his social networks are something that a, a certain slice of American journalism can can recognize? And, yeah, I think and, that I think that that's that's what I was trying to say. I mean, yeah. I think that that's it's like someone they're comfortable operating yeah. around. So know, I think he know. went to Yale. I think um, that's right. And then Duke graduate school at Duke. <clears throat> And University of Chicago as well, I think. Um, you know, these these are elite schools. Um, a journalist roughly his age, they probably know a bunch of people in common. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I know a few people just, you know, professionally who overlapped with him at some maybe grad school or undergrad or high yeah. school. So, um, so and, and I'm not saying that those folks, you know, that journalists, uh, you know, even liberal journalists are going to find his ideas absolutely repellent but when it comes to actually talking to him his strategy story the strategy and i guess he shares with jared taylor mm-hmm. but not earlier generation is you know dress up and and get the social cues right you'll get traction mm. certainly in america i mean it's one characteristic of american culture that if you look and sound like you know what you're talking about mm. if you look the part people accept you mm. for what you present yourself as well that's a good that's a good segue mm. back to the the White House stuff and mm. what the kind of state of play is there because you had a column last week that was speculating a bit about um, whether there's any new tension or distance between Breitbart and Trump um, and you know bearing in mind that things will probably change three times by the time this podcast actually sure. comes out um, it seems like so Rince is gone Rince Priebus is not in the White House anymore. Mm. There's another general on staff, mm. and it looks like yeah. Scarborough is out. Oh, Hi. how about that? Hi. As Sorry. of today? As of ten minutes ago. Scarborough is out. So the new okay. What, what for? Nobody. Just because he's evidently crazy. Yeah. Okay, so Baron. Now he's, 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 he's also funny. divorced. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but the, okay, so the the three people I was going to say are still there. Uh, Bannon, uh-huh. uh, Miller, yep. and Gorka yep. have somehow, even though at, at, at every point in the last six months, their names have all come up. Oh, they'll be next. They're still there. Mm-hmm. They seem to be, um, apart from Kushner and, and Ivanka, mm-hmm. um, some of the most effective in terms of steering the direction of this administration mm. and they also happen to be the most sympathetic with mm. this sort of white nationalist worldview mm. um, each in their own unique and disgusting ways mm. and what do you think uh, is going on I mean so yeah the, the story I wrote that you talked about last week was about how Breitbart has written now written some stories critical of Trump in defense of Jeff Sessions and I think that that reflects an ambivalence that certainly exists all over the, what do we want to call it, the, the nationalist right and further about Trump, you know. Um, Breitbart is all, the reason there was a story is that Breitbart until now has actually been broadly pretty supportive. You know, amongst those folks, there's a sense that he's not our guy, you know, he's, he's not one of us. No, and they know that. They know that he's you know, mercurial, and he's not re- even really much of an ideologue. He has these instincts, which are nationalist and and 
uh, exclusionary in terms of immigration. And he certainly believes that his superior Trumpian genetics have sure, you know, yeah, and he's established his place. <laughs> and he's totally happy. I mean, him and him and um, Sessions seem to be on the same page where it comes to that racialized law and order stuff. And and Trump's had a long history. You know, with that, you know, I remember those Central Park murders where he took out a full page ad. I mean, yeah, I, and making I think his job at his dad's company before he got launched his own was essentially screening out black tenants, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> um, but for all that, they see him as a kind of opportunist, and you know, he may have a lot of common ground with them, but they don't they don't fully trust him, and they recognize that he's not he's not like Pat Buchanan. You know, he's not he's not. Um, ideologically um, consistent, you know, in, in, in their mind. Um, so so there was um, this Peter Brimelow talk. Peter Brimelow gave a talk, and he gave Trump an A, but the main reason was that he's not Hillary Clinton. And But then he went through and, and, and gave examples of things that he'd done, but he hasn't really done any of these things. He hasn't really done any of the things that he wants them to do. And, and what's more, he's prioritised the Republican agenda you know he's prioritized Obamacare he, he as, as they see it he he bombed Syria um you know and that that, that offends their kind of non-interventionist ethos um so, well because there's also the proxy conflict with Russia in play there and right. they see Putin as some kind of like white savior figure right and and you know a lot of them see any kind of uh, U.S. intervention as in the Middle East is just serving Israel's agenda and you know everything that goes with that. Yeah. Um, so, and Spencer got up and asked Brimelow a question and, and Spencer said he, he only gave him a C and, and I talked to him uh, after the speech and asked him about that. And, he, and it was for those reasons, you know, he, he was he was saying, well, like, why, is, why hasn't he built the wall yet? Why hasn't he pressed harder to ban uh, Muslim immigration? Why hasn't he... Um, you know, stop, why, why hasn't he stopped immigration across the border? It, you know, illegal immigration, as, as they put it. Why hasn't he continued to be that kind of maverick who's destructive of, of, of what they see as that, that unsatisfactory Republican consensus? Why hasn't he remained a kind of, you know, alt-right figure or soft alt-right figure, at, at, at least in the sense of uh, someone who, has, who is criticising and destroying Republican orthodoxy and Republic, establishment Republicanism. So they're ambivalent about him. Um, the other thing about the, the critical Breitbart stories um, is that there's clearly an affinity between these folks and between Bannon and Jeff Sessions, who is... Um, someone who's been committed long-term to, you know, immigration enforcement and, and who himself was sidelined and ostracised during the Bush years in the yeah. Senate because they wanted to go in another direction. Even in the Bush years, they wanted to at least rhetorically and presentationally soften their stance, you know, on race. Um, and he, he wasn't someone who could cope with that. Um, uh, so, so the Breitbart stories, you know, um, the folks I talked to who are kind of experts on on right wing media, you know, kind of suggested that 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 Bannon may have had a hand in that, and this is partly an artifact of that internal struggle at the White House between that kind of nationalist wing, for want of a better word, um, yeah, and the and and the and the privacy. Uh, 
Priebus. How do we say that? <laughs> he, toast. He's gone. Toast. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that kind of establishment Republican wing. And, and these guys are kind of constantly paranoid about being purged. But who's actually been purged? As you said, you know, it's 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 the more mainstream figures, Spicer, Priebus. They're the ones who've gone. I mean, Gorka. <laughs> That, that, that Talk about of, the auto, autodidact, uh, you know, without any grounding. I mean, I, yeah, I guess he's got a real PhD, but his his like old buddy was the supervisor. Right, <laughs> just a joke. I mean, right. I mean, it's like it's not quite an internet PhD. But... Yeah, it's like a <laughs> couple of steps up. Yeah, someone dug that up, and I've read sections of that. I mean, it's completely, it's it's completely, you know, it's not a rigorous kind of a thing. I mean, the forward. See, it seems to me demonstrated pretty clearly that he he's got a deep and long history with the Hungarian far right. It yeah, he's pretty much. I mean, they pretty much established that he's a lifelong neo-Nazi. I mean, for for him to survive that, um, 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 and you know, for Bannon to survive, even though we had all those stories about how. You know, Trump had become disenchanted with him. And... It seems like Bannon recognized that the thing that made Trump mad was that he was hogging too much attention. And since then, uh, you haven't read a lot of stories about Bannon the Mastermind. Don't you think that's partly his doing? Yeah. Uh, that he's just realized that he could stick around if he just kept his head down a little more out of the limelight. Yeah. Stopped giving quotes to people. I mean, because he was very talkative. I also think to your point about, you know, Breitbart criticizing uh, Trump over this or that occasionally, I mean, I wonder to the extent to which Bannon uses Breitbart to pressure Trump, you know, externally when he's not getting his way in the internal fights. Yeah. Yeah, the relationship with Breitbart is complicated because of the factionalism. But Infowars now seems to me like the conduit for pro-Trump messaging. Because of Stone, maybe Roger Stone. Stone leaks to them. You know, I believe that. Well, he's an employee now. Like he's got a show there as of tomorrow. I think there's a new roster on Infowars, and he's got a. They're expanding the lineup, and he's got a show. Like he's an employee of Infowars. Wow. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised to see Mike Flynn turns up turn up there in some kind of like color commentator capacity, assuming he gets out of this without. Going to prison, but but Stone just gets his his talking points onto Infowars without question, without any kind of critical examination, and and so that's why like while Breitbart were publishing these stories, um, um, Infowars was preparing the ground for Sessions to be fired, you know, and calling him ineffective, and and um, you know um, even having a go at him about the war on drugs, like calling him a, a tyrannical kind of um, proponent of the war on drugs, um, as a way, as, by way of, you know, because Stone's into legalization as well, but, <laughs> but by way of, um, by way of kind of, yeah, preparing the ground for Trump to fire him. I mean, Infowars is now much more, a much more, the home of much more unambiguous pro-Trump messaging, even than Breitbart, and, and that could be reflecting those those kind of fractious relationships inside the White House. It's but it's hard to tell, right? Uh, I guess the le- this level of um, discord on the far right media or mm. mainstream or whatever it is now, mm. it, I guess you have to call Infowars a mainstream outlet if it's a if it's the White House, mm. house mouthpiece, effectively, mm. and if it gets thirty million. Mm. 
yeah. years a month. I don't know if Jones's figures are accurate, but I don't see any reason to disbelieve that it gets that many yeah, listeners. No. Uh, if there's this level of discord and fracture, then that's got to be sort of positive, right? Even yeah. if some of these, you know, extreme racist narratives are now being recycled in the mainstream, um, they're not. We're not talking about a, a, a real totalitarian sort of media operation where uh, the leader's voice is not the only allowed uh, view. Yeah, that's true. It's not. It's not a kind of totalitarian situation for now. You're but still, I mean, you're, you're still seeing power struggles play out. Yeah. Yeah, although the nationalist side seems to be winning. And, I mean, my other worry is we've seen what Trump does when he's in trouble, right? Like, last week, he went and talked to those police officers and said, you know, beat up suspects, basically. That was the scariest, maybe not the, but one of the scariest moments of his presidency so far, I thought, personally. And so that's another place where American Renaissance lines up with Breitbart lines up with Infowars lights up lines up with the White House, which is scapegoating Black Lives Matter. Yeah, scapegoating anti-fascists. I mean, they're always looking for scapegoats, yeah. and and um, it's um, they ch- their scapegoats change. You know, they change from Black Lives Matter to anti-fa to. Just like who's allowed as white changes. What they're really all about is hierarchy. I mean it. And if you want to simplify the division between right and left, it's it's hierarchy versus equality, and um, uh, anything that looks like equality is just deeply offensive to them. Gender equality, racial justice, and equality—that is the red thread that unites all these guys. And that need for hierarchy and exclusion, and so it gets blurry. You know, it's blurring at the moment. Um, People like Bill Buckley don't exist anymore. There isn't anyone who can who can kind of draw a kind of bright line and say, "Well, this is this is the border of acceptable conservative discourse, and this is the amount of lip service we have to pay to certain liberal values." I, and I don't know what to put that down to. It could be the media environment. It could be the loss um, of the living memory of the fight against fascism. I think that's an undersolved factor. Mm, we just yeah the historical experience of, of fascism maybe really created an exceptional period in United States history where where that kind of upfront public racism wasn't acceptable. I mean it it was for for big slices of this country's history. I, I don't know exactly what to put it down to, but there was a time where as ugly as you know um the US right was there was a kind of capacity to to exclude or marginalize certain kinds of things and and that capacity seems to have disappeared i think that's a good place to wrap it up thanks all for right coming over. thanks man yeah uh, that was jason now uh let's give michael a call how you doing pretty good i'm just taking a weekend in massachusetts i heard they just legalized weed they did hot damn yeah thanks for coming on the show again it's my pleasure you got some big news right i have very big news actually news you're involved with Corey. yeah I, I there's no need for me to play coy you have a new show coming up i have a new show coming out and it's inventively titled the michael brooks show tmbs right tmbs as trademark bullshit or too much bullshit 
<laughs> and uh, so I, I will be making uh, regular appearances. Yep. Who else? Waz, Wazni Lambre, who's a co-host of ESPN True Hoop. Brilliant guy and a good friend of mine. Anoa Changa, she's an attorney, civil rights activist, kind of emerging left commentator. Yeah. Brilliant. Bashkar Sunkara, friend of mine, founder of Jacobin Magazine, another brilliant person. Uh, Hannah Gaze, who was at the Baffler, is a Russia specialist. She's actually going to be starting at Harvard Divinity School. She does an amazing Louise Mensch impression, which I first was exposed to as a regular listener on your show. Yeah, I got to get Louise back on pretty soon. Yes. So I'm really excited about it. The first public show is going to be streamed live on August 9th. So you just go to patreon.com slash TMBS, patreon.com slash TMBS. You got to say it at least three or four more times like that old head-on ad. Like Bill Clinton. Yeah, he always said, he said, you got to make the point three times. <laughs> Patreon dot com slash tmbs it's a new conversation yes so there is a i don't know what should we call it a mushrooming of independent mm. media people are putting their money behind it uh just like they're putting their money behind new political organizations from the left but this is creating some what's the word consternation <laughs> good word some heartburn basically among liberals establishment democrats and immediately we've seen oh god I don't know how many controversies in the last couple of weeks. Well, just since the last show, which are not really important in the way that the healthcare debate and the unfolding chaos in the White House and like the collapse of American empire and the licensing of a new police state by an authoritarian leader. Not in the way that that <laughs> stuff is important. When you put it like that. <laughs> not in the way that that stuff is important, but it's still important because uh, these little dramas are the way that uh, who gets listened to gets established. You talked about one recently on Majority Report, the New Republic, Jeet here, long think piece about Chapo Trap House, who we've also had on this show. Uh, Will and Amber have been on the show. So this is the this is the new kids on the block versus the right. old guard in a lot of ways. Yes. Jeep kind of being the new old guard. Well, the you know, the New Republic, there's some right. overlap with the Baffler, so it's not that clean cut. But we're talking about a clash of, uh, of worldviews as well as... Uh, um, <laughs> Clicks? I don't know. What do you want to call it? Yep, I like the word click. Clash of the clicks. What is the essential complaint? Just to pick out that one controversy. Yes. Look, I think Jeet's main complaints, and I, I want to start, I mean, there's there's kind of three different components. One was that I think, unfortunately, Jeet really poisoned the well of his own piece by, without you know rehashing the details, he, in the process of debunking an obvious critique of Chapo, which was that this whole bend the knee thing, which some people said was like... Like a sexual comment, which it obviously wasn't. Ajit, in the process of dismissing that, like gave that charge a couple of graphs. Okay, if you know something's bullshit and everybody else knows something that's bullshit, why would you do screenshots of some of the most crazy people on Twitter and sort of give that airtime before dismissing it? That's the kind of drama component, but I think that does need to be acknowledged because it, it hurt the rest of the piece because it was it was a disingenuous way to start. And of course, thrust of his argument is that politics is about persuasion and coalition building. Eh. And, you know, look, <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. There it is. Robert. Well, he wasn't just complaining about Chapo. He's also complaining about this whole universe of of right. uh, basically podcasts and right. uh, left media. Uh, he mentioned the Baffler. Yeah. He mentioned he, Mark Games and John Dolan's show and some others. The people like us on this nascent, genuine left, whether it's Marxist or anarchist or whatever, you know, or even just genuinely left progressive, understand that 
that politics is about power and it is a exercise of who gets what, where, when, and how. And that, you know, great victories never happen through some type of kind of general forward trajectory of history. It didn't happen out of the goodness. Like, you know, there wasn't like a corporate titan who at some point said, ah, you know what? I think we ought to just stop having kids work in sweatshops um, because that seems like the right thing to do. I've been persuaded by a speech. They were defeated by actually like labor unions fighting in the trenches and actually, you know, like fighting hired goons by corporations to fucking murder them. You know, the smaller point is like, look, I mean, okay, bend the knee. If you're like me, I think, you know, if you're in your early 30s and you have genuine left politics, I had to bend my knee to vote for. Hillary Clinton, for God's sake. People in the center have been calling us, you know, delusional, racist, and sexist, and everything imaginable in the process of trying to demonize things that any commonsensical person should support, like a living wage. Back in the aughts, the critique was basically like, you're hysterical, we're the grown-ups, let us take care of this. You're not going to persuade anybody with your uh, dreadlocks and your anti-war protests. Like, we alone understand how power is, is wielded and managed. Obviously, that hasn't worked out so well. You know, you've also seen, with the left rising a more angles of that centrist critique which are like you said it's sexist racist all of this spurious stuff i think that the existence of this pushback the intensity of it shows that power is scared right yeah and i think you captured it right there in that tonal shift which is like Corey, like you have your own show you know with your own lane i have my own show my own lane building these direct audiences then that all of a sudden means that like i offended some fucking editor mother jones who actually clearly doesn't know what they're talking about with regards to like any number of foreign or domestic issues so what whereas you know maybe several years ago oh my god you know in an already kind of completely shrunken liberal landscape, these sort of denizens of a handful of like mediocre think tanks and exhausted magazines control the conversation. And I think that that is exactly what's happening so that you're right. They are also in a position where they are no longer the gatekeepers in the same way they were at all. I mean, I, I just think several years ago, even when I first started playing in this space, like in 2012, 2013, I mean, even then it was like, yes, I want to be on MSNBC with a genuine left perspective. Where else did you go? But in this environment, Joy Reid just tweeted something totally demented. And, you know, and Rachel Maddow does completely misalign her coverage priorities. And th these things are just true. And we're not beholden to those same gatekeepers. And that freaks the gatekeepers out. Well, they're, lo they're, they're lost. They, they, they don't understand what's happening. They don't understand why uh, the left is more popular. They don't understand why Trump is president. They don't understand how to fix these things because they haven't diagnosed them correctly. Apart from the material stuff, huge part of the reason that the left is, is gaining traction in media and politics is because it provides a clear and basically accurate diagnosis of why things are happening the way they are, why the world is so scary all of a sudden. Yes. That, you know, MSNBC, CNN, even the, uh, you know, the smartest uh, liberal publications like Mother Jones and uh, New Yorker have basically failed. To provide. Yeah, I, I think that that's 100% right. Not only is there no contradiction between having a serious inequality agenda and being serious about defeating white supremacy and defeating misogyny and all the other absolutely urgent social emancipations that we need, but the through line was a class thing. And since there's no class politics and no class rhetoric in this country, you saw a group of people who were totally socially, culturally, professionally complacent. They basically thought 
between the innovations in Silicon Valley and you know greater diversity and more people getting degrees and having enlightened technocrats from the Democratic Party lead us that we were basically moving into like an HBO Go future. I grew up with a family that was on food stamps that was evicted from houses. I have someone very close to me right now, uh, familiarly, who's in something of a housing crisis. The total disconnect between those realities and those concerns and that whatever you want to call it, liberal technocratic establishment is very stark. Glenn Greenwald subbed for uh, Jeremy Scahill on his podcast the other week and he had Tucker Carlson on. And he actually did rightly hit Tucker Carlson on you know his xenophobia and his fear mongering, although it was a very friendly interview. But the, the point that I took from it was Tucker Carlson is playing a very cynical game. And I think the way he talked about issues of deindustrialization and even like the specifics of where he summers in Maine and I know what he's talking about, having like been to Bates and spent time around Maine. Like Tucker Carlson has a absolutely more accurate diagnosis of large swaths of the country than I've ever seen from, you know, a Rachel Maddow or a Joy Reid. And I don't say that with like satisfaction, like, oh, I'm scoring a point against the like annoying MSNBC libs, because I still think roughly like, of course, I'm more generally on the side of, you know, Maddow or Joy Reid. I find that really disturbing. Well, the same is true of Steve Bannon, for that matter. Why do you think he keeps proposing like higher top tax rates, you know, regulating the tech companies? Yeah. They ran successfully to the left uh, of Clinton and 2016, and they're obviously planning to do it again. The other thing that's happening with, you know, in these new kind of debates about the left is this sort of like tone policing. Even though we've reached probably the peak of a particular kind of madness with call out culture, you do see it with this odd simultaneously like, oh, you guys are promoting this kind of awful, irresponsible and unrealizable socialist politics. And then at the same time, like, you know, how dare you be entertaining? You know, how dare you make fun of the slate cultural gab fest or whatever you know it's kind of extraordinary because you see this like kind of liberal establishment being so serious about things that are relatively trivial and incredibly cavalier about things that are life and death that's because they're not life and death for them yet right and this is where we get back to like the importance of a class politics but you know it's like even on the left people succumb to the sort of default individualist assumptions of a American society. And Twitter certainly encourages that. There's not like a week that goes by where I'm not sort of pressured or even sometimes asked directly to denounce someone or other. Just undermines whatever shared goals we have. It's dangerous times. The threat is coming from the right. It's not about, is everybody on our side perfect? I screw up. I'm sure you screw up. No, No. never? Okay. No, of course not. I am the wokest man on planet Earth. Best point is, dude, I I mean, I honestly think, I don't know, maybe not me specifically, whatever, or you specifically, or Chapo, or Street Fight, or District, or whatever, all these shows specifically, or Majority Report specifically, but I think in general, there is a a brand problem on the left, and we're helping that. That's why they're so upset. Right. And I'm constantly telling my liberal friends, look, this is happening because young people especially are drawn to the left. It speaks to them. It offers them something. Thing. And the same old package of like ads and political broccoli is not, it's not appealing. It's it's not nourishing. That's the important thing. I mean, Jesus, uh, every once in a while, because I have to, I watch 
like oh what did what did the people on CNN say about uh, you know whatever insane shit that Trump the president just said or uh, right. you know whatever uh, breaking news there was today and it's always just completely off point you know submaronic and yeah. my show your show uh, the other left new left media does not it treats people like they're intelligent and it gives them a a path to power and it provides something that was the source of Obama's popularity which was hope the idea that maybe if we get together we can fix this rolling disaster and actually start taking care of each other yes because because jeet's column as weak as it was that was a piece that actually at least on some level attempted to say hey we have a different understanding of politics than they do and this is a problem i think that's a good place to leave it yeah it's always great to talk to you man okay very much looking forward to mike's new show and you can catch me on there as well thanks jason thanks mike subscribe at thebaffler.com i'm Corey pine this is news from nowhere catch you in a couple of weeks bye